So I was looking at the numbers, and if the price of Bitcoin drops just a little bit more, it'll be back around the price when I sold some to buy all the gear that I am presently still using in the studio. Now, some of it is getting to the point where it needs to be replaced, especially the PCs. That was a really kind of like, wow, we have seen a major drop here. The price is really falling. And so now I feel like maybe it was a good decision to sell that Bitcoin and buy the gear because I've sure got a lot of value <laughs> out of all this studio gear. Yeah, you had your own personal Bitcoin moon right there with JB. I guess so. We'll see. We'll see if the price gets that low. I don't want to say what it was because I'm embarrassed. I have been embarrassed for so many years. It's funny how a bear market can change your perspective on things. One thing that listeners may have noticed is that I'm pretty heartless when it comes to people who get wrecked in DeFi and Ponzi schemes and other things like that. And I just want to make it clear that I'm also heartless with myself because, you know, I once donated a lot of money to Arthur Hayes being a billionaire on BitMEX. I touched the hot stove too. That's true. I hope I'm not a hypocrite because I think I have also paid the price of knowledge, which is being an idiot, gambling, thinking that you're smarter than these professionals who are out there taking everyone's Bitcoin and then discovering, oh no, I'm not. I'll leave it to the professionals. Yeah. It's funny how you can try all these different things. You can think you're really super clever or you found a new way to make money with Bitcoin or whatever. And then if you give it enough time, it turns out the cleverest thing to do is just get your Bitcoin off an exchange and hold it and just leave it. Yeah. These DeFi meltdowns, in my view, reveal Bitcoin's killer app. And I see my seagulls agree with me. <laughs> we should say you are still on the road this week. It's an, it's another remote production. And the birds like you. Well, actually, we're having a bit of a battle right now because two seagulls tried to eat my dinner and I had to fight them. And now I think they're dive bombing. They will. Yeah. They know I'm podcasting. So they're, they're letting you have it. They know when the humans are talking. They love to interrupt. I have had birds swoop in and take the hot dog right out of the bun of my wife's lunch. The bird just flew down. It was like a crow or a seagull. It was about that size. Flew down like an expert, opened up the mouth, nipped the hot dog with the beak and flew off. Holy moly. Left everything else behind. I'd say he earned it. That's the metaphor is be like the seagull. Right. I think we found our episode title. Swoop in and, and get your Bitcoin just at the right time, like a seagull getting a hot dog from RoboSats. And I didn't even explain. The point is that the killer app is self-custody. Oh, yeah, right. Because it's a game changer. Self-custody was invented with gold, but then gold self-custody is really hard because people keep on coming to your house with weapons and shovels looking for your gold, right? And so people solved that security problem by putting gold into special warehouses. At first, you had, this is almost like the original pre-banks, the de' Medici type banks, and they were in fact more like bonded warehouses than what we think of as a bank today because you actually paid the warehouse to protect your gold. They were doing you a service by basically taking the custody risk. Presumably they had insurance in case someone broke in and stole any gold. But modern banks, it's a completely different relationship. It's not like you give the bank money and it's still your money and the bank is holding it. What actually happens is when we deposit money into banks, we give the bank our money and they now say, okay, thanks for your money. We've made you a creditor. And so you actually are lending to the bank when you deposit money in the bank. And maybe that seems sort of a technical distinction, but it's actually important because when banks fail and when there are issues paying back depositors, you actually join the line of creditors to the bank. 
in most countries, there's types of government insurance policies that try to prevent this from happening. But insurance really only works when you don't need it. When you really need deposit insurance in a banking system, the entire banking system is insolvent. And I think the only time that's happened in a first world country recently was in Greece. Or was it Cyprus in the 2008 crisis? And what happened there was not a bailout, but a bail-in. And so in that situation, because the Cypriot banks were insolvent, they actually just gave all of their depositors a haircut. Maybe you had 100 euros in the bank, well, you only get 80 back. And so all of the depositors, they actually bailed out the bank, except it wasn't a choice they made. This was just a policy that was given to them because they didn't have custody of their funds. And so what's revolutionary about Bitcoin is you do have custody. You can take personal custody. And once you do that, you don't care what happens to the Bitcoin financial ecosystem. It can blow up and it's not going to affect your hardware wallet. The TradFi system can blow up and it's not going to affect your hardware wallet. Yeah, it may affect the Bitcoin to dollar price, but the actual Bitcoin, the physical quote unquote Bitcoin are unaffected. That's a killer app. And there's nothing like that peace of mind. You can hear what dad's saying there, but when you actually experience it, when you see all this going on, you see these different platforms that have locked down withdrawals and you think to yourself, I'm totally fine. I know where my Bitcoin's at. It's all good. That is a real peace of mind. And I think you're right. I think it is one of its killer features. There we go. In episode 29, we figured it out. Right. What is going to bring Bitcoin to the next billion people? It's self-custody. Maybe. Everybody gets a cold card. You get a cold card. You get a cold card. <laughs> <laughs> but you better get one quickly. So, okay. Hello and welcome to the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, July 15th, 2022. I'm your Bitcoin Dad, and I'm here as always, remotely, with... With me. Well, me, Chris. Chris. Hello, everybody. Thanks for joining us. I hope that people appreciate that slightly awkward introduction and have realized that that's our trademark. <laughs> we could go for polish, but let's be honest, we might not ever get there. But awkward, we can deliver on every single time. I mean, I can do awkward without even trying. It's sort of the default mode. So that, you know, we want to make sure we could deliver on a target. I mean, I almost kind of did this podcast just to prove to everyone that, yeah, I'm married and have a kid. Yeah. Surprised <laughs> you, didn't I? <laughs> They're like, yeah, how did that happen? <laughs> I like the idea that you're just like low key linking it to like old friends and family or, or colleagues or whatever that you used to know that maybe you know, never thought you'd, you'd uh, go anywhere. You're just like low key linking them the pod. It's not the Bitcoin thing that surprises them. <laughs> yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> they probably saw that one coming. Yeah. <laughs> so on today's episode, we are going to discuss the imminent arrival of the first European central bank digital currency. We're also going to have a talk about the language of Bitcoin in the context of European regulation and why that's important. There's also an interesting article on whether U.S. government employees who work on crypto policy should be allowed to own crypto. This is kind of an interesting question about government and oversight and incentives. Should be a fun discussion. In economics, the ruble yuan direct exchange volume is exploding totally predictably. The Federal Reserve is actually researching the Lightning Network and seems to be impressed by it. In tokenomics, Celsius finally files for bankruptcy and it's a chapter 11, which is actually kind of hopeful. It's a restructuring, not a liquidation. I doubt it'll work out, but there you go. Turns out that Voyager might be able to recover a dick butt NFT from the 3AC bankruptcy. <laughs> 
Oh, man. Yeah. <laughs> when, you, when you stray outside Bitcoin, the crypto world gets weird quick. In energy, we have an article from Lynn Alden about the energy markets that is a very solid piece of research, and an EU report that compares Bitcoin to internal combustion engine cars. No comment. Ugh. In Bitcoin education, we have a fantastic article from BitMEX Research on the op return war and how this relates to distributed applications. We also have Bitcoin Optech 208 and a great article by listener Bitcoin Lizard about using a virtual private server to hide your IP address for your Bitcoin note. That's a big show. Yes. And then we'll also have some feedback. Oh, my goodness. I know. We'll be here all night or day. Well, let's start with the news that is not surprising, but is very frustrating. What do you say? This French CBDC that seems to be imminent. It's pretty interesting because central bank digital currencies are, in many ways, they're kind of peak fiat. But they also speak to the weaknesses of the current traditional financial system. So what you'll notice in all central bank discussions around CBDCs, they actually affinity scam with Bitcoin. Central bank digital currencies are in many ways similar to your standard initial coin offering scam that kind of says, hey, here's this thing and we know Bitcoin's good, but this is like Bitcoin, but better. Except every time you hear that pitch, the thing being presented is total garbage every single time. And this is double true for CBDCs because a CBDC, it basically cosplays as a distributed blockchain type system, but really there's only one party that matters, which is the central bank. But the other aspect of central bank digital currencies that's pretty interesting is they're a realization or an admission that current financial system rails really, really suck. They have two things. They want to do full surveillance, but then they also want to have a platform for moving money around that doesn't break constantly the way that TradFi does. And they're trying to balance keeping the existing players in there. Here is a quote from, uh, you know, essentially the, the French Treasury officer, their equivalent. He's, they say, quote, the euro system should entrust banks with the distribution of digital euros to final users, while settling technical, functional and commercial rules, for example, the branding logos and that kind of stuff will be responsible at the central bank. But they'll be in there as a partner so they could have even potentially branded versions of a CBDC, like with their bank branding on there. They'll have a role, but it all eventually comes back to them. The way this really sounds to me, your analogy of uh, altcoin is almost perfect because it's they are pre-mining the coins, the tokens, if you will, and then they're going to distribute them to certain banks and they'll control how much they get. They can control certain elements of it, but the banks can also kind of build their own systems on top of it. Kind of like your Lunas were built on top of the uh, Cosmos SDK. Right, except every layer on top will be more restricted because this thing has restrictions built in the flexible monetary policy. It has the ability of the central bank or bank partners to freeze addresses. So it's going to be strictly worse than whatever we have today for money. Whatever efficiencies from using public private keys to send money back and forth are going to be removed by the restrictions on who you can send to and the amount of disclosures you have to make when you perform transactions. And talking about commercial banks gets to another issue with CBD which is CBDCs literally kill banks. Because if I can have a CBDC account, that means that I have an account with the central bank. Well, what do I need an account with Chase or Wells Fargo or Santander now? I don't need a commercial bank account if I have a central bank account. 
And so this basically cuts out commercial banking. And that's really problematic because like it or not, the commercial banking sector produces the loans that create businesses and make commerce possible. And so creating CBDCs, in my view, is crazier than the U.S. blowing up the petrodollar system over Russia because they could literally kill commercial banking in the process and that would drive economic growth to zero. It would be a catastrophe. It's literally creating the 2008 financial system, all the banks go to zero scenario, but it's doing it intentionally. It's nuts. Yeah, that very well could be exactly what happened. I could see initially them just structuring it in such a way that you just don't have an option. There's always a a middleman to give the commercial banks a purpose. You have to interface with them. And then the other thing that would do, that would make the commercial banks extremely subservient to the central bank, right? They would have to, because just imagine how this would be structured. That'd be such a nice little setup for the central bank. They'd essentially have the illusion of a market while completely having the commercial banks by the short hairs. But you know, I have a family up in Canada and Rogers just had a massive, massive outage out there. And the one thing that they really stressed to me was only cash and coins worked for days. Wow. Nobody could buy anything with their debit cards wow. or you know, their phone payment. Yeah. Days. Days. Did they have the internet back up or was it no internet and therefore no payment systems? I don't know. I might be getting the numbers wrong, but it was something like 40 to 60 percent of the Canadian internet was down. And of course, it was in some key areas where the population is particularly dense. And that meant all point of sale systems were down. Hospitals were down. It was a massive outage. And it was due to like a a mistaken configuration getting pushed to production early in the morning. And it replicated throughout the network and took everything out. Was it BGP? It's normally BGP, right? I don't know. I thought so, too. They didn't really say it. Maybe somebody has clarified, but I haven't seen it. That's when the power of Ansible really, really gets you. (laughs) (laughs) Right. Yeah. Sometimes you can auto configure yourself into a corner. And so my cousin was like, I want you to really wrap your head around this for a second. He's like, the only thing that worked was cash. And I don't think people here after that experience are going to be comfortable with a digital currency. Yeah, for sure. And the next article I link to, which is the Bank of International Settlements Project Jura page, this kind of lets you know what an absolute technical mess nightmare central bank currencies already are before they've even been deployed. First of all, on the subject of internet outages, obviously that would also disrupt Bitcoin. Well, here's the thing. Bitcoin and cash is like a marriage made in heaven. You know, we love cash. Cash is king. It's private. It's fungible. You can transport large amounts of value relatively easily with cash. I mean, it's great. I love cash. I think we should all have cash as a backup. And that's why I hate CBDCs, because they're part of a war on cash. That said, I think that the future of money is digital, and it's Bitcoin, because frankly, most of the time the internet works. If we're going to live in a world where the internet is not working half the time, then all bets are off. Sell your Bitcoin, buy weapons, and just go after your neighbors and take their stuff, because that's the world (laughs) we're moving towards, right? In an outage scenario, let's say like a bunch of point of sale systems, we're accepting Bitcoin now. I mean, I don't know about lightning transactions, but just general blockchain-based transactions, you could, in theory, accept the transaction. You know, you'd be taking some risk as the merchant, but if you're like a coffee shop, who cares? And then when the internet comes back up, you know, everything gets settled. You know, I was just seeing, so I don't know, It's they're deleting the tweet now, but the Bitcoin archive just tweeted four minutes ago that the SEC says it might exempt the crypto market from certain securities laws. Can they do that? And now he's deleted the tweet, so I'm not sure why, but could you imagine? Ugh. Don't do it. But they would, right? Because if you create an ICO, you've printed free money, and now you've got a lot of money to donate to a political campaign. Not only that, but it's like finances is the big industry, right, in the United States. And so maybe there is 
like this pressure to just make it bigger and bigger and bigger and bigger, you know, and then they just manage it because they've got Jerome's going to take care of everything. He'll manage it. I don't know. I mean, I don't know who actually believes that. Jerome Powell is a lawyer over his head. I just can't understand why he would want to get reappointed to the chairman role. How much direct decision making do you think he makes in terms of like the rate hikes and stuff and and when and how much? Do you think he's just a voice? Not much. So first of all, the Fed doesn't actually have debates. I read a book back in the day. I'm going to make a terrible confession. I actually uh, was in a job interview once to work for the Fed. (laughs) It was a bad interview. Obviously didn't get the job. Years later, Later, I met the guy who had gotten the job and he was totally burnt out and had like gone to Asia to lose himself backpacking. So I felt really vindicated when I finally met him. Wow. I read a book once called A Year at the Fed, which was written by a one term Fed governor. So this is someone who is on the open market committee. And these are the old people who sit around in a secret room, you know, set the price of money for the whole world. And obviously that's a crazy way to run the world, but here we have it. And what this guy said was that essentially their conversation is prescripted. Yeah. Like it is a farce. The decision's already been made and it's not really clear by whom. There's this complicated interaction between the appointed governors and then their professional staff. There's like this institutional inertia, institutional culture, and then there's the governors. And it's just not clear who makes the decision. And they don't really have a good back and forth way to have discussion. So it seems to me that the Fed is probably a pretty dysfunctional institution. And that kind of explains why they're always late to the party. They always seem to be two or three months behind on their policy. It's always a mess. Yeah, they always seem to be going by trailing indicators, even though they should know better. CBDCs, central bank digital currencies. We have a link to its Bank of International Settlement. They have a paper on something called Project Jura, which sounds very sinister. And it is. And it's essentially a test they did to create a wholesale central bank digital currency. The idea is that there's this special central bank digital currency that is only for use between central banks and commercial banks. Project Jura is basically a platform where central banks and commercial banks can trade different wholesale digital currencies, and they can also make payment for bonds for digital currency and stuff like that. It's interesting because when I read the paper, I was kind of amazed at the complexity of the system. I mean, it is mind-bogglingly complex. And this is only a test with three entities. And already, it's quite difficult to express how the system works on a two-dimensional diagram. And the reason is because they're taking the kind of broken, controlling ideas of traditional central banking and trying to express them digitally. As such, they're intentionally creating a fragile fragment system. This is so bad. Having a special wholesale type of money that banks can use, but then you can't use to lend out. You have to use this as like collateral to create another type of currency that can be used by normal people and by commercial businesses. It's preposterous. It breaks the network effects of money. So when I look at the actual research being done on CBDCs, not for a moment do I question whether or not Bitcoin will be better than these solutions. The only question I have is how much damage will these systems do to the real economy as they're deployed? Or will people figure out quickly that this is just a dead end and do their best not to participate in these systems? Perhaps. I also wonder, will they just inevitably just put it on your bank account balance so you just keep using your debit card? And so as a consumer, you're just using the same payment methods you've always used. But behind the scenes, the commercial bank is transacting with the central bank using a CBDC. I think that's likely. At the same time, it's still going to be damaging. 
because I think that we'll probably still be able to make most of our credit card payments and our general everyday spending. I think that should probably still work. I mean, if that doesn't work, then there's going to be social unrest, so it had better work, right? What makes me worried looking at a system like this is already there are liquidity problems in the traditional financial system that is preventing the loan creation that creates new businesses. The problem is that the traditional financial system already has liquidity issues that are stopping the creation of loans that drive real economic growth. You've probably observed this in the US. Companies are getting larger and larger, and medium-sized companies are either merging to form larger companies or they're dying off, and small companies are basically already all dead. What's driving this? I would say that the issue is that small companies can't get bank financing anymore. There's a breakdown in commercial credit markets that allow smaller entities to get access to the liquid capital they need to do business and create jobs. And as a result, only larger entities still have access to those markets. So I just worry that central bank digital currencies will exacerbate this problem and we'll get stuck with an economy full of massive companies that can direct directly plug in to the central bank money system, but the compliance rules and everything will be so onerous that smaller companies can't and they'll just wither on the vine and disappear. Yeah, that does sound about right, doesn't it? Well, that's that's great. Can't wait. Keeping it positive. <laughs> CBDCs, always a fun conversation. Now, in case that was too metaphysical and complicated, we turn to an article by Dergigi called The Words We Use in Bitcoin about the terminology of Bitcoin coin and linguistic attacks. Interesting. I've been thinking about this because I got a bit of feedback in our Matrix chat room last week. He said, you know, I just started listening to DadPod and you guys were talking about maxis, but I have no idea what is a maxi. <laughs> you never said what a maxi is. And I thought, oh, yeah, I guess there's just certain terms like hodler and maxi and those types of stuff that we just throw around these days that maybe could be a little obtuse to people outside the Bitcoin community. Well, I was hoping to solve that problem like The Economist magazine does. So if you look in our show notes this week, every term is explained. So I say the IMF, comma, a sinister international financial group or something like that. Ah, perfect. So Bitcoin maximalist, comma, someone who believes that Bitcoin will be the international reserve currency of the future. Hmm, okay. I feel like we need a better term, but I'll agree to it. That's a good short way to say it. And from that becomes comes a passionate advocacy <laughs> that sometimes is anti-everything else, but now accept it. Right. And we'll tell you to have fun staying poor on Twitter or something like that. <laughs> yeah. Right. So this article is, I guess it's maybe a little meta in the sense that it goes in over commonly used words in Bitcoin and kind of how misleading they are. The idea of a Bitcoin wallet. It's a good metaphor in many respects because a Bitcoin wallet generally speaking, is a piece of software that allows you to send and receive Bitcoin. You kind of think of like your physical wallet and bills go in and bills go out, but it's different because a Bitcoin wallet actually isn't sending and receiving Bitcoin. It's actually signing and watching for messages on the Bitcoin blockchain. Should we explain how that works or just acknowledge that the words we use are imperfect and can be helpful, but eventually like might mislead you as to how the system actually works. Yeah, I agree with that. We've kind of touched on this before when we talked about mining. If perhaps the term producing would have been used, perhaps we would have avoided some of this environmental panic.
panic around Bitcoin because it's rough equivalences, an analogy to stuff in our everyday life. And I've never really thought about it, but wallet is kind of by default, it's a word that makes you think they live in that piece of software. They live in that wallet because when you have cash and you put it in a wallet, you're physically putting the cash in the wallet, not something that says, okay, I have this key and the actual cash is stored somewhere else. That's not how people think of wallet. It's interesting. I The more I think about it, the more I realize we've kind of just adopted words that are imprecise for this stuff. I wonder if they'll always be this way. I wonder if, you know, if Bitcoin's around in a hundred years, which I imagine it will be, will we come up with new terms, do you think? I think so. One suggestion Gigi makes is that a hardware wallet is not really a wallet so much as a signing device, because that's all it does. It signs Bitcoin messages that allow you to, quote unquote, spend those Bitcoin using the software wallet. Now, this can seem a little navel-gazy in the sense, why do we really care? We kind of know the terms wallets, keys, hardware wallet. Why make it complicated? Why is this a big deal? Well, I think this is actually pretty interesting in the context of regulation. Because basically, the European Union quite recently came close to trying to ban, quote-unquote, unhosted Bitcoin wallets. You know, this really is a nightmare. They're basically saying you're not allowed to self-custody your Bitcoin. The problem is that the term unhosted wallet suggests that the default is a hosted wallet. Un is negating hosted. And therefore, unhosted wallet would be the minor case, right? The major case, the common occurrence would be the hosted wallet, right? Using that kind of vocabulary. Does that make sense? It does, yeah. Right, and I think that's kind of the idea. The idea that the way that you're supposed to interact with things is by using someone else's wallet. I mean, a hosted wallet is someone else's wallet. And that's obviously crazy, given everything we've talked about with Bitcoin. The whole point of Bitcoin is to use your own wallet so that you can participate in self-custody, which is Bitcoin's killer app. And the language around the European discussion in the European, I guess it's their Congress, you know, is completely misleading. It basically attempts to conflate self-custody with doing something abnormal and potentially suspicious. We see that too with coin joins and mixers. There was recently an article by Ars Technica that was quoting large sections of a chain analysis uh, marketing piece that spins mixers as this insidious thing that's used to hide your transactions for illicit activity. And they said there's a giant jump in the volume and the way that the language they use and the way they talk about it all positions it as a very bad thing. When the reality is there's just a historic outflow from exchanges. People are getting the message, not your keys, not your coins, and they're taking custody. And when they're taking custody, they're also using that as an opportunity to do some coin join. I mean, that's what's going on here. And I know it because I'm doing it. Our matrix room's talking about it. People are doing it right now. And the way it gets spun in the R's article is very, this is a bad thing. And it uses language that kind of leads you down the road of thinking that something nefarious is happening here. Right. And I think that when people spin financial privacy as suspicious, you know, that's just them letting you know that their opinions are bad and that they don't understand fundamental human rights and human needs for financial and other privacy, and that we don't really need to care too much about their other opinions. I mean, we listen to be polite and to see if there's something else there. But frankly, I've read through a lot of articles and a lot of raw documentation about these EU regulations and there's nothing good here. To me, these proposals read like a government 
full of people who, frankly, don't understand how fragile and complex their financial system is. At the same time, they have a sense that it's not good. They have a sense that other options probably should be discouraged because people will take them. I think that's kind of the vibe I get. And part of the reason why I think the discussion around Bitcoin terms is really interesting, the last article we've linked to in this series is by this fellow named Budion. And the title of the article is The European Union's Attack on Bitcoin is an English and math comprehension problem. I think this is a very, very metaphysical article about Bitcoin. It makes a really interesting case, which is that if you open a Bitcoin wallet, it looks like a fintech app because that's what we're used to. That's kind of what we expect. But what he says is Bitcoin wallets are essentially message signing tools. They sign Bitcoin transactions, which are messages, and they watch for messages relating to the public key of the wallet. And that's when you receive Bitcoin. And so the point he's making is that Bitcoin being completely digital, being completely a product of math and energy doesn't actually need to be governed by regulation. Because you can say, listen, you're not allowed to use Bitcoin or a Bitcoin wallet. Well, this is just a messaging app. Are you going to ban messaging apps? Are you going to ban encryption? A wallet doesn't have to be a wallet. It could just be a messaging app is kind of the point he's making. It's a little metaphysical, but I think it's really worth a read if you're interested in kind of the free speech and conceptual loopholes with understanding exactly how Bitcoin works, because it's not the way that the metaphor of Bitcoin works. Yeah. And it really does drive it home. It's great for that. I like rethinking that stuff. And I don't know, maybe because these terms we've been kicking around now for over a decade, it just all feels like it's been around forever, but it's all still new. And maybe some of it changes as the world adopts Bitcoin. Yeah. Reading this, it really makes me feel like, gosh, I think we're really early to this party. And I just hope to have the stamina to be interested and involved in the conversation in 10 years. Yeah. Because it's going to be wild where yeah. what's happening then. I have no idea what it'll be like. <laughs> now, did you check out this final news, general news section article on should U.S. government employees be allowed to own crypto? Yeah. If they are involved in crypto regulation? Yeah. And we'll link to this one if you want to read I was hoping in there they would go into more detail about other assets that are already banned, because I could see this as a common practice for stocks or, or other assets when you're in the process of regulating them. And I can definitely and totally understand the logic. And I could see it as a good idea in most cases. They even mentioned like mutual funds. If like there's anything that comes close to touching it, then you have to like remove yourself from certain parts of the decision making process. And they even include stable coins, which is interesting, right? Because stable coins, in theory, don't really go up or down depending on it. Yeah. Depending on rules. I also wonder, and I wonder your thoughts on this, if maybe in this one case, this could be a bad idea because it's such a new set of concepts to wrap your head around that the only way you can really even understand this ecosystem is by diving in and just getting experience. Yeah, 100%. I think there is a couple of problems here. So on the one hand, obviously, we don't want policy being made to enrich the people who make the policy. And this gets to the problem of Congress, because Congress actually passed legislation that allows congressional members to insider trade. They're allowed to make personal stock market trades based on special government information that's not publicly available. And that is problem with Nancy Pelosi. And basically every congressional person does this because they're legally allowed to insider trade. And that's a great way to make money. And that also really screws up 
their ethics, frankly, and their incentives, because they shouldn't be thinking about how to use insider knowledge to enrich themselves. They should be trying to improve the situation for citizens of the United States of America. And clearly, they're not doing that right now, uh, given the state of the United States and the general approval rating of uh, Congress. That's a situation we don't want to replicate, right? At the same time, if people discussing crypto, I hate to use the term, but that's the term they use here, uh, cryptocurrencies in government and discussing the policy have not used them, then they're basically going to be anti-crypto because it's too weird, it's too complicated. And if you're someone with an open mind who wants to try this stuff, you're going to get banned from the conversation. So a policy like this kind of self-selects for the most hostile elements to crypto to be the ones regulating it. And that, I think, is problematic. Mm, That does seem like a problem. I, I don't know exactly what to make of it. Well, let's go a step further. What about housing? Housing is an asset class. Should government employees that regulate housing be allowed to own houses? Of course they have to be able to own a house. Oh, really? But I mean, maybe actually, if you're going to be involved in government and involved in these important policy decisions, maybe you shouldn't have a house. Maybe you shouldn't be allowed to own stocks. And if you think about that, you can't own a house, you can't own stocks, you're basically taking a vow of poverty now. Yeah. So you're, you might end up with this like very odd government workforce that's not representative of the general population and, you know, just has like crazy ideas that is like a completely separate culture. That would be kind of interesting. Maybe a bad idea. I don't know. Yeah. Where do you draw the line? The more the more I think about it, this seems like a really bad policy because, you know, on the outside, all of these different projects will present themselves as legitimate. They'll present themselves as decentralized. They'll present themselves as liquid and secure and stable. And of course, we know that the reality is usually far from that. But how would they ever get a sense of that? How would they ever know? They'd have to rely on really good expertise, you know, and I will see. It seems like they're probably going to more likely rely on industry. But frankly, I kind of think that this is small potatoes in the sense that it's probably good that there's an office of government ethics, but when you got Citizens United and you legalized lobbying and you made it so that money is speech, so the richest people and corporations get more speech than average citizens, it sort of feels like in the United States that kind of political ethics have been broken at such a fundamental level that quibbling around whether or not employees should be allowed to own specific financial assets it's, it's not even lipstick on a pig. It's like lipstick on the fly on the pig. Like it just it seems completely pointless in some sense to me. <laughs> that is pretty good. Well, this is one of those. I don't know. What do you do other than just sit back and see what happens because they've put the policy in place. It's not like it's going to get revised. It's done now. Yeah, I think it's fun to think about. I like the idea of people thinking about, well, do we want government employees kind of thinking about their portfolios when they make decisions? Is that good or is that bad? Who knows? Yeah, I do like people thinking about that. Let's think about let's think about that for the Congress critters as well. Because there is this whole idea of, oh, Congress shouldn't be allowed to insider trade. And at the same time, okay, well, are they allowed to own Bitcoin? You know, to me, it seems like the line is and it's an asset versus a security. Like I'm okay with them owning property, even though they could pass laws that might, you know, make that more profitable for them. It does seem like with stocks, because it's it's a company stock. There is the ability for the company to manipulate the politician. Like it just seems like that's where the line is for me. But maybe that's just because, you know. I'm a Bitcoiner. <laughs> That's a good point, because with a stock or a altcoin, it's a centralized group that is controlling that asset. 
And so they have kind of like very centralized incentives. But with Bitcoin or say gold, gold is produced by many different companies. Bitcoin is produced by many different mining pools. And there's no CEO of Bitcoin who's going to have a meeting with you and slip a Bitcoin in your pocket so that you pass some policy or anything. Maybe Michael Saylor. Oh, gosh. Wouldn't that be great? You go to Michael Saylor's house, you do an interview, he puts a Bitcoin in your pocket. <laughs> there is no second best. There's no second best. <laughs> Which brings us to economics. I don't know about this one. I, uh, I couldn't get access to it, but my ears are peaked. We've been talking about the end of the petrodollar system. And so for new listeners, the petrodollar is this international financial construct whereby Saudi Arabia sells oil for dollars. And that means that every country in the world that wants to buy oil needs dollars. And so this creates demand for US dollars. But actually, the petrodollar has a second secret part that was only revealed, I think, in the 90s. And the secret part of the petrodollar system is that the Saudis, who run OPEC, the Organization of Petroleum Exporting Countries, they produced massive amounts of oil, sold a lot of it to the United States. The U.S. gave them dollars, but the Saudis actually recycled these dollars back into U.S. government debt. And this enabled the U.S. government to run massive budget deficits ever since, I want to say, 1973 or 74, when this agreement was inked in secret. And another aspect of the petrodollar system was that the U.S. would militarily support the Saudi dictatorship in Saudi Arabia. And so actually the term Saudi comes from from the House of Saud. The House of Saud is basically a bloodline. It's a family that controls Saudi Arabia, and they suck. They're the worst. They have this pretty toxic version of Islam called Wahhabism that inspired Al-Qaeda. It's kind of like the least tolerant, most intolerant of any sort of other branches of Islam or other religions. Saudi Arabia is an economic wasteland. They only do oil. The House of Saud is not bound by laws in Saudi Arabia. And so it's a family of incredibly corrupt princes who go around the country pillaging any useful looking business and signing these very shady oil contracts where they basically take massive kickbacks. So it's a very dysfunctional society and it's propped up by the U.S., and actually, the petrodollar system and the way that the U.S. props up the House of Saud created Osama bin Laden. In fact, Osama bin Laden's entire political platform was a critique of the petrodollar system and the military assistance that the United States provides to the Saudi royal family. And it's kind of interesting how the U.S. chose not to understand that aspect of the Osama bin Laden's agenda and instead just doubled down on this system and fought an oil war in Iraq, which was supposed to provide access to even more oil, which, you know, didn't didn't quite work out. Sorry, that was quite a digression. It's an interesting history, and it gives you some context to all of this here now, uh, especially as energy prices are such a core focus of what's going on in the macro environment right now. As we record this, even Joe Biden's over fist bumping with the Saudis right now, you know, because energy prices have gotten to the point where it's a necessity that he go over there and, and continue that really complicated relationship and nurture that really, really complicated relationship. It's an absolute stain on any sort of moral authority that the 
U.S. government wants to claim. The Saudis are currently fighting a, I guess you could call it a war in Yemen, but it's really mostly the Saudis taking expensive U.S. military hardware, bombs, drones, and deploying them against an ethnic group called the Houthis. And uh, this is essentially a form of genocide, but it's not getting that label because when you annoy the Saudis, they slow down the oil production and that really screws everyone up. So this is a very toxic, dysfunctional relationship that the U.S. has with the House of Saud. Yeah, you want to talk about volatility. <laughs> oh, zing. But this is, you know, this is the petrodollar system. And by the way, just to drive home the point how bad these people are, Mohammed bin Saud, MBS, is the name of the current dictator slash king slash ruler prince of Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is the guy who had a journalist named Khashoggi vivisected in the Istanbul consulate of Saudi Arabia. So this guy Khashoggi, he was writing some stuff about the royal family that MBS did not like. And they reach out through their consular service because this guy's living in Turkey. He's living overseas. He also writes for the New York Times. They say, hey, you need to renew your visa or something, your passport. He goes into the consulate. And I mean, I've been to many consulates. This is like a very bureaucratic, normal thing. You go to the consulate, talk to someone behind a, a kind of a glass window, and then they take your passport and they give it back to you, whatever, no big deal. But instead, he's shown into a conference room and then he's um, subdued by like a couple guys and they literally cut him into pieces while he's still alive. They literally chop him up into pieces and like put him into a suitcase while he's still alive. That's the House of Saud. That's the kind of stuff they do. And the U.S. president is currently over there fist bumping with the guy being like, hey, bro, um, can you get some of that oil pumping? I mean, it's, it's absolutely disgusting. When you talk about this, it, it makes me realize we so often are talking about the mathematical inevitability of the reserve currency status of the dollar falling apart. We've looked at how different countries are pulling back on their reserves and having a mix of the U.S. dollar and they're taking U.S. dollars out, including Israel and others. And we've talked about these factors that seem like inevitably the system will start to fall apart. But we haven't really talked about this fact which you just laid out there, which is also obviously unsustainable for the very long term. I mean, it's clearly sustainable why the U.S. is very powerful, very influential, and everyone needs to be on their best behavior. But as that begins to wane, this very system that props up the U.S. dollar seems unsustainable. And it seems like yet another piece that will erode. It will take a very long time, but it seems clear like it can't last forever. There's so many structural issues. Saudi Arabia is a powder keg just waiting to happen. Dictatorships, they always look stable and then they blow up, they surprise everybody and, you know, it's like, oh gosh, didn't see that coming. No, it's just an, it's an inherently unstable form of society because most of the people are really miserable and they're not doing anything about it because they're terrified by violence, but eventually you abuse them enough and they're like, yeah, you know, I don't really care. My life sucks anyway. So that was a huge digression discussing how horrible the petrodollar system in the House of Saud is. The story was that as a result of the war in Ukraine, the U.S., Bank of Japan, and European Union have cut the Russian central bank and, and many Russian banks out of the dollar financial system. And as a result, quite predictably, Russia and China are trading directly. And they're not using dollars as an intermediary currency because that's been made very difficult for them. They've set up a system so that they can send 
rubles and Chinese yuan back and forth. And that was obvious. Of course, they would do that, but they did it. And what this means is this is another nail in the coffin of the petrodollar because you've got the world's second largest economy trading with the world's largest energy exporter in a currency that's not dollars. Three or four years ago, this would have been the biggest political crisis you could imagine. This would be the crisis of the year. There would be news stories everywhere about how Russia and China are conspiring to subvert the U.S., and this would have been a scandal. Today, this is just par for the course, and that to me is a red flag that the petrodollar system, the era of dollar dominance, is over. And we're going to see more and more direct cross-border trade because at the end of the day, why the hell are we using the dollar? None of these people are in the U.S. Why would they be using the dollar? And the answer was, in the past, the dollar was a useful system, and it no longer is due to a combination of sanctions and economic reality such that the U.S. is now, as a fraction of world GDP, not that big. It's not 40% of the world GDP anymore. It's 10% or something. And that's just not a large enough fraction to fill the world with enough dollars to enable all the trade to happen. And so the world is looking for another option. I got to imagine, too, as the value of the dollar goes up, it becomes more expensive to buy dollars to get the goods you need to trade. So it becomes sort of you become incentivized to use a different currency just because the cost of dealing in the dollar. Yeah, that's probably part of the story. I know that when the dollar goes up, emerging markets generally melt down. So I think their fuel prices go up, their food prices go up. Because the U.S. also exports a lot of food. That's kind of part of the system, too, though I'm not quite sure how that works. So a strong dollar, oddly enough, it kind of breaks the global financial system, at least temporarily, as far as I understand. Right. They have to be considering that, too. But it's putting pressure. It's putting pressure on these cracks. Now, our final economics article is actually about the Lightning Network. Now, why is this in the economics section? Well, because one of the authors, Pete Zimmerman, actually works for the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. And he and his co-author, Anantha Devakaruni, have written a paper about the Lightning Network. Now, it's not using up-to-date data. I think their last data point was from 2019. But what they found, which will probably surprise no one who listens to this podcast, is that the Lightning Network basically reduces blockchain congestion. You know, it takes a lot of transactions that would have been on the Bitcoin layer one and it moves them off chain. And so it reduces fees on the main chain. The interesting thing about their paper is they do a bunch of economic regressions to try to isolate what is driving lower fees on the Bitcoin blockchain? So is it demand for Bitcoin transactions? Is it SegWit adoption? Is it the Lightning Network? And they basically find evidence that it's the Lightning Network. They also um, look at whether or not the centralization of the Lightning Network improves its efficiency. And they say that you can't really say. It's not really clear. But I just think it's really neat that the Federal Reserve is looking at the Lightning Network and trying to understand it and basically coming to the conclusion that this is making Bitcoin more money-like, more fungible and useful for transactions. This is actually pretty positive. And it's nice to see it come from the Federal Reserve Bank of Cleveland. Not that there's some major influential bank, I don't know, but at least it's an established outfit. And they talk in here specifically about how it improves efficiency and the transactions and makes it more cash-like. That's just great to hear. And you know what the next step is? Is to realize that you could spin this as environmentally friendly too. It's good for the ESG numbers that lightning network. It just doesn't quite take that step. But otherwise, it's a pretty good uh, positive bit of research. Does it have any influence, do you think? 
Well, it's hard to say. I think that it's important that there is good research out there so that at least it exists so that policymakers can read it and can kind of get good insights before they make their decision. At the end of the day, there may be situations where the Federal Reserve just kind of feels like they're on the other side than Bitcoin and they're going to take a confrontational or negative stance, but maybe not. I think that there are arguments out there that the way to win at Bitcoin and win at the world is to adopt it first. And if you can get Bitcoin into your treasury before other countries do, you're basically an early adopter. And then other countries kind of have to buy Bitcoin at a higher price. It's this meme, you get Bitcoin at the price you deserve. And maybe that works at the sovereign level too. But no country is going to have a good Bitcoin policy without good research. And so a necessary part of that is that the research exists. And so I'm glad that at least someone's looking into this at the Federal Reserve and seems to be drawing reasonable conclusions. Yeah, they reached the correct conclusions. That's the thing. They reached the correct conclusion. And so it's nice to see research happen without influences that might push it a different direction and left to their own devices with proper research, they discover things and they come to the right conclusion. And in reading it, it is interesting to see how that came to be. I look at this and I think this is great because it does suggest that government agencies or institutions or banks are capable of doing the analysis and coming to the correct conclusion. Because, you know, honestly, I think as plebs, part of the strategy as just consumers is to front run governments. Like if you're stacking sats right now, probably in the back of your mind, you realize your strategy is you're front running governments before they start buying. Because once they start buying and large banks and institutions start buying, these, these prices are going to be outrageous. So this bear market is hopefully a really great opportunity for everyday people. And when you hear coverage about how, you know, only rich people own Bitcoin or Bitcoin is just getting the rich richer, right now is the opportunity opportunity for the everyday pleb to stack sats and get ahead of large institutions and governments. Everybody can right now, even, you know, a couple of dollars here and there. Well, I think that we can debunk the claim that only the rich own Bitcoin because we own it. <laughs> yeah, right. Exactly. Yeah, that's what drives me crazy. It's like when they're saying, oh, it's only going to make the rich richer. I'm sitting here going like, uh, actually, it, it could give a whole new swath of the middle class access to some wealth. It has a lot of potential. The ownership of Bitcoin is way more equitable and distributed than the distribution of stocks. I mean, people don't have a problem with stocks as a concept. They've gotten used to it by now, even though if you just look at the breakdown, something like 90% of the U.S. stock market is owned by the top one percent in u.s society by wealth that is not equitable that looks like a altcoin founders team distribution frankly yeah people just get used to it and then bitcoin comes along and they're like well, what, what, what is this it's so funny oh humans and it's like you haven't solved every equity problem with Bitcoin. Like, what about people who don't have electricity? And it's like, guys, if you don't have electricity, there is not a lot anyone can do for you. OK, you are so deprived that just getting you to like a 21st century lifestyle, it's going to take 40 years. This is not a problem that anyone's trying to solve yet, let alone Bitcoin. So why is this Bitcoin's problem, you know? So shall we move to tokenomics? Are you ready for some... Let's do it. Some goofy stuff? This is actually the part I've been waiting to talk about. Oh, please. Take it away. 
Well, we are really watching the knock-on effects of this bear market. We really saw it pop with Luna, and then you saw the contagion effect of everyone that was messing around with Luna. And then, of course, when staked ETH from Lido depegged from the price of ETH, we started to see more institutions get absolutely wrecked. They got margin called. They couldn't pay their loans. And institutions like Voyager and Celsius seem to have been hit the hardest. And what's particularly frustrating about an institution like Celsius is it has aggressively sold itself as the better bank alternative. Its CEO famously wore a shirt that said, banks are not your friend. He held live streams where he'd routinely attack banks and pitch Celsius as an alternative. Also, give you a great opportunity to buy some of their sell token, which will give you even a better interest return and get you a cheaper rate on their loans if you use sell as some of your collateral. So be sure you buy some sell token. We're a better alternative than banks. Which was an ERC-20 ICO token. Yes. Which, of course, course, they manipulated the price of on their own all the time, in my opinion, because they needed to burn and... They used 7,000 Bitcoin, which were customer deposits, to buy sell token and pump the price from 17 cents to $2 so that the CEO, Mashinsky, I think was his name, Mm-hmm. He and his wife and all these insiders who had free sell token were able to dump it at a higher price. Yeah, of course. And so Celsius was a really well done web platform. It looked really sharp. The interface was good. They supported just about every cryptocurrency under the sun and offered yield when you deposited those. And in the altcoin space, this is particularly attractive because there's no great altcoin wallet, right? There's no like cold card. There's no sparrow wallet. The best that they have is Exodus, in my opinion. But in most most cases, if you're screwing around and playing with the altcoins, you have to have half a dozen different wallets installed on your computer, and self-custody is just an absolute pain in the butt. So altcoiners in particular, I think, are motivated and incentivized to go to institutions like this because they make it so easy to hold all of your different assets in one place and stake and get yield on them. That was what Celsius did, and then they'd let you also use them as collateral for a loan, which did appeal to me at one time because I don't know when it was, like January, December, maybe before then, I was looking at the various Bitcoin collateral loan options, because ultimately, 10 years down the road, I imagine I will never sell my Bitcoin, but I may use it as collateral from time to time to buy property or, you know, for whatever. Right. And I just wanted to get a sense, you know, obviously it'd have to be a safe way to do it, you know, a multi-sig, you know, a trustworthy institution, et cetera, et cetera. But I was curious and I had about a $2,000 budget gap I wanted to try filling. I could easily collateralize that. So I was looking at all the different platforms and Celsius was appealing in the sense of the ease of use, the UI options, the pricing options, which were some of the riskiest in terms of collateral to loan. But what ultimately turned me away from Celsius, thankfully, thankfully, because if I ever would have put Bitcoin in there as collateral, I would not get access to it now. And I'm undoubtedly going to have to take a haircut if I had. Thankfully, I never did because of this sell token. They pushed this sell token so damn hard. I'm just simply not interested in screwing around with that. And so I never used their services. And then they also were blocked by Washington regulators later, regulators seemingly doing their job in this case. Voyager and others, you know, they these companies, they took customer money, your Bitcoin or your Ethereum or whatever, and they loaned it out to other groups who did things like buy the dick butt NFT. So think about that for a second. Seven hundred million dollars of customers crypto of, you know, if you're a Celsius customer, your crypto was used by some other company to buy NFTs at the absolute top of the market, at the absolute peak ridiculousness of the market. They went out and bought stupid auto generated NFTs with your cryptocurrency. And now they're gone bankrupt and they've shut down all withdrawals. 
Yeah, if I can just pile in. The idea of doing Bitcoin leveraged loans at this point in adoption is, in my view, incredibly dangerous and reckless. Let's just think about how loans work. You lend someone money, you need to be compensated for that. So this is the interest rate that you pay. But why would you lend someone money? I'm not going to lend my daughter money. She has no capacity to spend money in a productive way at her current state of development. And right now in crypto markets, they're just like my baby daughter. They are not developed to spend crypto in a productive way. They're speculative financial markets. Even Bitcoin, which is the most developed digital market ecosystem, the connection between Bitcoin and the physical world, the on and off ramps, they're still mainly for financial speculative activities. There are people that use Bitcoin for remittances. Bitcoin seems to be a good savings technology over longer periods of time. This is true. At the same time, any business would not want a loan in Bitcoin because it's so risky. What if Bitcoin goes up in price and I have to repay Bitcoin, but now it's a million dollars a coin? No one would do that. And so the whole concept of crypto lending and crypto borrowing, it was going to be a degenerate, speculative, leveraged activity. It had to be because that's what crypto markets do at this point. And this is not a dismissal of Bitcoin's future potential. It's just that we are very early to this phenomenon. Markets aren't ready. There aren't real world crypto ecosystems yet. If there was an economy where everything was priced in Bitcoin, you could go and do Bitcoin loans there because everything's priced in it. Therefore, if the dollar price of Bitcoin changes a lot, who cares? Because your costs are in Bitcoin, and so you're going to get paid in Bitcoin. And so, you know, you can do the math and figure out how to pay that loan back and have a productive enterprise. That doesn't exist. And so all of this Bitcoin collateralized lending, it's just so short term. It just seems like a really, we're way too early for this. And the meme was very popular. Earning interest on your Bitcoin, it tickles people's dopamine centers. It makes them feel like, oh, it's like a bank account. It's like a bond. I love this. It's familiar. It's like something in TradFi. Yeah, but it's not, okay? Because unlike theoretically a CD or something with a traditional bank, that traditional bank has relationships, at least theoretically, they should, with the local business community, and they can basically find a productive place to put your money for a certain period of time to pay you an interest rate on. That does not exist with any of the Bitcoin or altcoin lenders, BlockFi, Celsius, Voyager, Vold. All of these businesses were based around offering an attractive rate of return to get deposits and then taking these deposits and giving them to degen traders who YOLO'd them into, among other things, NFTs, of images of penises with little butts, okay? Yep, yep, <laughs> that's what it got wasted on. 3AC took $700 million from Voyager, $700 million, which were deposited on Voyager by plebs, by normal people who thought they were doing something smart. They were getting some return. Oh, I'm such a genius. He did not understand at all the risk profile of letting someone else custody your crypto. And then that custodian abused their trust by giving it to Suzu and Kyle Davies, two degenerate traders who convinced the world that they were brilliant guys and they do clever things. And then they literally bought a JPEG of a penis with a butt with that money. 
I mean, you, you can't make this stuff up. It's amazing. It's sad. What a, you know, generational wealth potentially lost there. And it makes you really question what due diligence did Celsius and Voyager do when Three Arrows Capital came knocking for money? Because everything you just said there is so true. It's such a nascent industry. There has to be some due diligence done for this kind of lending. And did they say we're going to go buy crypto dick butt NFTs, give us 700 million in stable coins, and they just did it? Like, that's the other thing here is there is a responsibility you would think on Celsius part. And I'm sure some of this will come through, come out in lawsuits and discovery and whatnot. The allegation is that 3AC provided false documentation to at least some of the entities that lent them funds. Because if they had been upfront and revealed that they were borrowing from everybody, then very few of these counterparties would have lent to them because they'd say, hey, look, you might be a genius, but if you're literally borrowing from everybody, you've just created contagion risk. And now I am exposed to what happens in every other crypto business via my connection to you. So no, I don't want to have that contagion risk. Thank you very much. And so because they did get funding from everybody, I've heard the allegation that they definitely committed fraud. They provided false documents to convince firms to lend the money, much of it uncollateralized. I've also heard the claim that some of the entities that they borrowed money from are not going to be satisfied with a legal judgment against them, and that Suzu and Kyle Davies, if they want to remain alive, should probably disappear and never return. Because, (laughs) yeah. I've oh, heard. Man. You know, I have heard some things are going down in terms of threats and violence and people getting security. It's getting ugly. And I want to take a second and just zoom out and and really kind of use this as an opportunity to say this is why value for value matters. And that's why boosts matter. It's so that we have runway. What you want is you want the primary source of funding to come from the consumer. Whoever's consuming it, you want the primary source of funding to come there. So that way the podcast incentives or the YouTubers incentives are aligned for that primary customer. The reason why I'm hitting on this is because I have watched a number of YouTubers and Twitter influencers who have heavily pushed affiliate deals for all of these because they're scrounging for pennies. And so they have pushed like crazy Celsius. Celsius got free airtime on every YouTube channel. The owner went on there and crapped on Bitcoin holders and pumped his Celsius platform. I mean, thousands and thousands of dollars basically in free advertising for that guy. Same with Voyager. Same with uh, Vald. All of these different platforms I have seen advertised by social influencers because they're all scrounging to make a penny. And it, it leads to this kind of those who have the money to spend are probably they have that money for a reason like and it's generally they're not using it to invest in infrastructure or code they're using it to invest in marketing it's a red flag yeah when you see that marketing that project that service everywhere it's like man they've got a really big marketing budget gosh they must be making a lot of money right or hey maybe it's a big ponzi scheme and marketing is literally their one expense because they're a ponzi scheme i would include blockfi on that list blockfi was promoted on some very big bitcoin podcasts and i'm still waiting for the apology and maybe it's not coming because blockfi managed to sell themselves to sam bankman fried for who knows maybe more than 24 million dollars maybe not and at least blockfi's customers didn't get completely wiped out yet at the same time that was not a given that was a lucky break and people who gambled on BlockFi, they got really, really lucky. That was promoted all throughout the Bitcoin space. 
Great. So another bit of tokenomic schadenfreude, we may have mentioned that if we had a yacht to interview financial criminals in the cryptocurrency space on, we might manage to get an interview with the founders of Three Arrow Capital, Suzu and Kyle Davies, who apparently have abandoned their offices in Singapore and are nowhere to be found. So it looks like Suzu and Kyle Davies may have been taking the advice of, gosh, what is uh, Nick Carter's partner's name? I want to say Jeremy Walsh, David Walsh, mm, mm, okay. who suggested that they find a yacht to hide on because the people they've defrauded may not be satisfied with just money as recompense. Wow. That's when you know they're dealing with upstanding characters of uh, the utmost moral code. I think it's family offices, frankly. When you mess with someone's family office, they're like, that was my family's money. I could see that. Yeah, so they're gone. Their office was just left empty. They filed for bankruptcy and they took off. But not before Suzu had a really BS tweet. He tweeted about how the liquidators of their hedge fund were screwing up because they'd neglected to exercise some warrants on uh, Starkware's latest token offering. Just a typical, hey, I blew up my whole hedge fund, but oh, these dumb liquidators, they're leaving all this money on the table. And it's like, Suzu, shut up. You lost billions of dollars and you lied to everybody. Shut up, man. Apparently, it turns out that he has a personal financial stake in that deal. So that's probably why he was annoyed about the warrants not being exercised. <laughs> so he's really just, just a uh, greedy jerk. just shut up man greedy you know jerk. he just needs to yeah really no kidding uh i know we have some energy news in here you know how much i love to talk about energy this lynn alden article it's just another kicker from her when are we gonna have her on i feel like she's almost a co-host <laughs> silent co-host the problem is every podcast in the world is trying to get her on i think she's a little tapped out based on she made a comment recently about how like somebody said to her at the end of an interview well we'd love to get you on again lynn she's like yes i'm sure booked out i'm on a lot of podcasts right now or something like that <laughs> and it is true yeah i mean like seriously lynn cut back the appearances y- you do enough honestly i feel like her newsletter comes out later now Hmm. I'll be interested to see if she still goes on shows like Pomp's show and some of those that were pushing Luna a lot during the bull run. But this this article from her... Sorry, I was just going to complain about Pomp. That's someone who I feel like needs to get canceled. Yeah, he should be held more accountable for the crap he pushed. He's just skating right along, I suppose. But this article from Lynn, it's actually really easy to understand. The concept is simple. It's something that I have been chewing on for a long time is the media, the economic press, and all of us really were looking at sort of the current real-time numbers of oil. You know, it's $110 a barrel. Now it's $95 a barrel. And we're really focused on the current price at the gasoline pump. But this piece from Lynn makes a great case that actually the issue is the longer that just on average price remains higher, there is structural damage that is being done to the world economy. So it's not just like, well, great, now it's coming down, so everything's better. No, no, it's still way above average. And the longer it remains there, the more long-term damage is done. And uh, she describes it as the area under the curve, which uh, is a way to sort of phrase it, I suppose. Yeah, exactly. Because what she's fighting against is this desire to say, okay, prices spiked up, but now they're coming down. So things are good. And the answer is, no, if prices have doubled and then they come down 10%, that is not good. Prices are still incredibly high. And a lot of our planning was in a world of prices that were half what they are today. 
And so over time, as the price of energy is kind of structurally higher, there's going to be destruction of energy demand and economic output in an economy that was built for lower energy prices. Right. Yeah, we've seen it on June 22nd, for example, crude oil was at $123. As we record right now, crude oil is at $97. But the issue is, is some nations, companies, institutions, etc., they budgeted for 60 because it was only like 60 a year ago or so, right? So now that it's leveled off at 97, yeah, true, that's down from 120 or the high of 150, but it's still way above 60. And the longer it stays there, even if it eventually comes back down, say over six months or whatever, just being at this price point for a sustained period of time is damaging. And Lynn points out that right now we have two large global things that are keeping the price of oil down. The U.S. is selling off the strategic petroleum reserve, which is basically a national stockpile of oil, and they're selling that down to suppress prices. Personally, I think that seems like a pretty short-term plan, but okay. At the same time, China is still doing a lot of lockdowns, which is suppressing Chinese demand for oil and gasoline and oil products. So we have two big kind of price-down forces that are still only managing to keep oil at $100 a barrel instead of higher. You know, Lynn looks at other forecasts for oil price, and her point is that basically the forecast for oil to come down in price is people looking back and saying oil used to be cheap, so it'll probably get back to that. And her point is probably not because it looks like OPEC is currently drilling oil out of the ground at their current capacity and oil and gas infrastructure to produce more of the raw materials that produce this type of energy, they generally are invested in in what we call commodity cycles. So when prices are really, really high, everyone invests in more oil and gas drilling capacity. And then that slowly comes online over a couple of years. And then they've bought too much capacity. So prices crash. And now no one wants to invest again for like another 10 years until prices are really high again. So demand eventually catches up with that new capacity. Well, guess where we are? We're at the end of the cycle where there hasn't been investment in a very long time in producing more hydrocarbons. And frankly, why would you invest at this point because you've got governments around the world talking about windfall taxes on energy company profits, accusing energy companies of being price gougers. And I kind of want to address that because I'm not an oil and gas industry shill. I don't get paid by them. And I think they're horrible. I think that the petrochemical industry really has screwed the pooch because they were funding this climate denialism research for a really long time. And as a result, I think a lot of reasonable people are incredibly suspicious of the oil and gas industry because of the way that they basically funded this bogus research that kind of tried to obscure the effect that carbon emissions have on global warming and climate change. Frankly, that was just terrible. That was just short-term dumb stuff. Because the thing is, the oil and gas industry did not need to lie about climate change. They are still 80% of global energy production. 80%, okay? Oil and gas is not going anywhere, like it or not. If you want to cut oil and gas out of our energy mix tomorrow, welcome to Mad Max. That is the world you're going to create. It's not a good plan. The idea of making a rapid transition to alternative energy sources I understand the appeal because there's a lot of concern about climate change and if we tackle climate change too late, maybe the earth is going to be a fireball in 100 years. Frankly, I gotta say, I think that that's alarmist because one, 
If the earth is going to be a fireball in a hundred years, frankly, it's not your problem. You are going to be dead. So if we're going to do something desperate today because of something that might happen in a hundred years, I would just be very skeptical about that logic because we don't really know what's going to happen in the future. Okay. We have to add some smart uncertainty there. Well, we do know that there's significant ramifications if we remove energy from society at dramatic rates. We do know that has massive consequences. Exactly. And so, for example, I'm also kind of anti-car in the sense that I think people drive too much and use cars in silly situations. But if you go around taking away people's cars and the infrastructure around them requires cars to function, people literally cannot live in their environment because you've subtracted something they need, those people are now desperate. Congratulations. You've just created a whole group of people that now hate environmentalism and environmental policies and will react irrationally to future environmental policies that might be very well considered. I guess what I'm trying to get at is, like it or not, oil and gas is a major part of the energy mix. And if you want to have a functioning economy and food on the table, then we kind of need this market to work. And what Lynn is getting at is that this market will work, but at higher prices. There's sort of not a lot of spare capacity to produce more oil into the world. The U.S. monetary base is rising, and so over time, oil prices will basically reflect that increase in monetary units. And she's not making a direct price prediction, but my vibe is that she thinks $200 oil is in our future, and that we are at the beginnings of a sort of leg up to a new higher level in oil prices, and that's just going to be our reality. Yeah, I could see it being slowed by a recession. Bloomberg two days ago reported that gas demand is actually dropping off the cliff right now in the U.S. and, of course, in China as well. But that's because of prices. And as the prices begin to come back a little bit, that'll probably change. But a major recession could do a dramatic reduction in demand, which could pause the climb in prices. But, you know, you look at it, uh, for example, our refineries here in the States, they are now producing at levels they haven't been producing at since 2018. I mean, they're really cranking now. And so there is starting to get this overall consensus set in that, yeah, there might be a little bit of capacity, especially on the Saudi side, but there's not a lot more capacity, especially not here in the States. Of course, all of this just gets sold into a world market. Even when the U.S. starts producing more, it doesn't necessarily directly impact the prices here in the States. Any reduction in demand and, and therefore gas prices caused by a U.S. recession, that gets wiped out the moment that China decides they can't handle lockdowns anymore and they're having too much social conflict as a result of that. And they ease lockdowns and then they're driving again. And then boom, demand for oil and gasoline shoots up again. So a recession to reduce demand, it's a temporary plan at best. And I, I really don't see the point because at the end of the day, the issue is supply side and solving that supply side issue takes high prices and investment and industrial policy. And two of those things we don't have right now. Indeed. And uh, Lynn, of course, always has some great charts to help visualize it. There'll be a link in the show notes if you want to read those. And our last energy piece is a report from the EU. Oh boy, this is going to be a good one. This is about as bad as they get. This came from the European Central Bank. And the premise is, well, look, if the oil companies are going to get a talking to about their energy use and their carbon impact, then there seems to be no way around the fact that proof of work industry also has to get a good talking to. And it goes as far to make the disgusting equivalency of comparing proof of stake to electric cars and proof of work 
to gasoline internal combustion using cars. It's so gross. Which is so dumb, okay? Because, you know, one, an electric car is not a clean car. It requires a lot of mining and mineral processing to produce lithium-ion battery units. And then, if you're driving that car in China, it's coal-powered. If you're driving it in Poland, it's coal-powered. If you're driving it in Turkey, it's coal-powered. The cleanliness of your electric car depends on your energy mix. People don't have a clean clear idea in their head of the phenomenal amount of power these cars use. As somebody who has an RV that I charge and I'm aware of like how much power it takes and the very specialized kind of outlet you have to have in the larger breakers. And then these electric cars, they use substantially more power when they charge than my RV, which is a 40 foot home, right? They use triple the amount of electricity to charge. It's an unbelievable amount of electricity. And so to say that it's that that's like proof of stake is silly. It's just absolutely bonkers. And it shows you how nobody understands the fundamentals of any of this stuff. I mean, they do all the dumb stuff. So they compare the carbon footprint of Bitcoin to that of a mid-sized country. So first of all, you can't estimate the Bitcoin carbon footprint. You can estimate the amount of electricity that Bitcoin miners have used. And again, that's an estimate because you don't know what mining unit they're using. So you can basically tell the hash rate of the Bitcoin network, and then you can infer the energy usage by basically dividing the hash rate by what you think the current fleet of mining units, application-specific integrated circuits, ASICs, are in the field. So if you have 10 terahashes of hash rate, which is not the current hash rate, and you have S9, which are old generation miners, if everyone's using S9s, then you're using tons and tons of electricity. But if you're using S19s, which are a more efficient, newer generation of miner, that's a lot less electricity. So you have to kind of guess which mining units are being used to come up with the electrical number. And then once you have the megawatt hours or whatever of electricity, you then have to go and guess at where these miners are and depending on where they are, you can kind of infer what their energy mix is and therefore their carbon footprint. So what I'm getting at is inferring the carbon footprint of Bitcoin requires a huge amount of guesswork and would be very easy to do wrong. And so they're talking about it like it's a settled issue, but there's a lot of question marks here. And frankly, are there any other industries where we compare the emissions output of the industry to a country? What is the emissions output of the cruise ship industry? What is the emissions output of the steel industry? Is it the emissions of Germany? Is it the emissions of right. the U.S.? Who knows? I mean, it's just it's just right. a silly metric. It, what is the carbon footprint of all of the cows that feed the McDonald's machinery, right? What is the carbon footprint of all of the potatoes for all of the fries for Wendy's? It's probably notable. It's probably bigger than Bitcoin. What is the Let's carbon footprint of the U.S. military? Oh, it's bigger than Bitcoin. We know that one's bigger than Bitcoin. I mean, the framing of this issue is clearly negative. This is a problem. And Bitcoin is a problem. My God, Bitcoin, why did you? create this problem for us. Yeah. And the other kind of red flag you'll often see is they'll talk about the energy use in a per transaction way, which is absurd because the Bitcoin mining network and the nodes use the same amount of electricity to process one transaction as they do a thousand transactions. So that's another area where you'll often see them go, a single transaction cost as much as, and that's just an absolute impossibility to measure because there is no such thing as a single transaction cost in terms of electricity use. And they basically misunderstand how proof of work 
works because proof of work is a lottery to find a acceptable hash for the next Bitcoin block. And they basically describe proof of work as a computationally expensive operation that translates into high energy consumption. It's not actually computationally expensive. The reason that you need to put a lot of work to find the next Bitcoin hash is that there are a lot of miners and Bitcoin's difficulty adjusts to compensate for how many people are mining. So proof of work isn't necessarily hard. When Bitcoin was invented, people were mining on their laptops and earning 50 Bitcoin. I did. Yeah, like Chris. So why is all this energy being spent to work on Bitcoin? The answer is because Bitcoin's really valuable. So what drives the energy is the value of Bitcoin. That's fundamentally what's happening. It's not like proof of work's inefficient. What the energy usage of Bitcoin is telling you is that Bitcoin is so valuable that it's efficient to use a lot of electricity to find Bitcoins. <laughs> and this directly translates into Bitcoin being the most secure computer network in the world. Now, remember, this is coming from the ECB, and I think they are probably biased towards institutional organizations, and they are probably biased against decentralized things like Bitcoin. Like, here's how they talk about proof of stake, Ethereum's, you know, planned upgrade. They write, the Ethereum Foundation has announced a set of upgrades that will be fully launched by 2023 to make it ever more sustainable, among other objectives. So they focus on the sustainability that the Ethereum Foundation could be planning this proof of stake migration for literally six years and has missed every single deadline, right? I don't know. It's been years, right? But yet, whenever it's talked about by one of these institutions that wants to spin it in a positive way, it's just around the corner and it's going to make it more environmentally friendly. It's going to be more sustainable. Wait, but hold on. Wait for the other shoe to drop. All these initiatives are welcome in principle. They remain voluntary in nature and, and are unable to enforce changes in the consensus method. So basically, ECB is saying, hey, uh, Ethereum, thanks for selling yourself out to us, but we wish this was actually non-voluntary, i.e. I don't think the ECB is comfortable with monetary systems outside of their control in the European Union. See, now, I read that as that's their suggestion that regulation should be passed that makes proof of work illegal. So that way, a proof of stake system isn't just optional. It's the only option left is how I read that. You know what? I take it back. I agree with you. I mean, the other thing that's interesting is that they even criticize proof of work for using renewable energy sources because it might crowd out other uses of renewable energy, putting countries' green transition targets at risk. This is just a really weird non-market-based view of energy. It's like, look, <laughs> if the other thing was not as valuable as Bitcoin mining, it doesn't get that energy. So I think that this kind of reveals that fundamentally they view Bitcoin as not valuable and therefore any energy spent on it is definitionally wasted. Right. You know, you're exactly right when you say it doesn't take market realities into effect. And this isn't getting enough attention. But what is happening this summer right now has proved out what Bitcoin mining companies have been saying for all of last year. In Texas, the Bitcoin miners are shutting down. And as a result, the grid has enough power to run homes and businesses. The reason why they, that power is available is because the Bitcoin miners made it economically viable for Epcot to invest in that additional capacity because they had a guarantee dedicated customer that could buy that capacity. So they increased capacity, they increased energy production in Texas, and then when they needed that, as the grid got slammed because of the heat wave, they asked the miners to shut down, the miners complied immediately, and that additional load became available to the rest of the grid. And when they're done with it, the Epcot folks have a guaranteed buyer again. It's working right now. It's happening right now, and it's not getting any attention. Yeah, I think the demand response function of Bitcoin mining 
is something that seems valuable on some grids. I think there's a lot more to it, and I'm trying to get an interesting guest that we can talk to about that. So Ooh, when, we, when we have that'd be great. Yeah, when we have a good guest, this is still in the works. Uh, I think we should do a double interview because I know you've got a lot of questions you want to go through. It just gets me so fired up because like we're right here in this ECB report, proof of work gets slammed and slammed. But when there's an actual real world demonstration of how it can be an ally with the power grid and right, we're not even getting into methane gas capture and stuff like that. We're just talking about wholesale buying electricity from the grid as a regular market player. We're seeing it play out. And that's super exciting because that argument was in somewhat theoretical as China shut down and a lot of miners came to the states they really tried to focus on this new way of doing business and they promised these manufacturers will be a good customer and now they're delivering on that promise it's really good to see it and i hope some of these regulators are taking notice i just like to skip to the end of this report at the end of the day what they're trying to do here is basically send a signal to financial markets and say hey listen crypto assets that are using proof of work we're not going to bless these as esg environmental social governance approved assets so so don't go around funding these things. That's kind of what they're trying to do. This is kind of typical central bank behavior. It's jawboning. They're kind of threatening the market or, or sort of making their position clear, hoping that uh, market participants don't go against them. Frankly, I don't think there is going to be too much interest in proof of work mining in the European Union <laughs> because the European Union has serious energy security problems. They structurally have a higher price of electricity than North America and other economies. It's really not an attractive area to do Bitcoin mining in. At the same time, why is the ECB so hostile to Bitcoin and cryptocurrency in general? I think it could be because it's so energy based. Proof of work uses energy. And when you look at the kind of great repricing we're going to be going through for the next several years, energy is going to be, like we were just talking about earlier, one of the most valuable things. One of the real true assets of this world, if you will, is going to be energy and fiat currencies and government currencies are getting debased and that's accelerating. And so things that are backed and tied to the price of energy are going to be ultimate stores of value and they're just outside the system. And so I think inherently a group like the ECB is hostile to it. Now, I may be giving them too much credit because I'm implying that they actually understand the direction of the market, the way that pricing is going to be going as they should. But because they're a central bank, they're probably completely off the mark like they always seem to be. But if they were doing their jobs and they understood where things were going and they understood the problem with their currency, then they'd know that things that are backed by energy are going to be their real competitors. And Bitcoin, because it's so liquid to get in and out of, and because it is essentially backed by energy, seems like it would be threat number one. Yeah, I'm nodding along. And I think that the ECB... They have a much more fragile financial system, mainly because the United States holds its debt at a national level via the federal government. So if you view European countries as states, the European Union doesn't have debt. The European states have debt. And this is problematic because the southern states colloquially known as the pigs, Portugal, Italy, Greece, and is there an S? Slovenia? I don't know. They're basically insolvent. And right now, Italian government debt is blowing out. And this means that the ECB can't stop 
quantitative easing. Without quantitative easing, Italy has a debt crisis. And if Italy has a debt crisis, they can't be in the euro. When a country has a debt crisis, their currency goes to zero and they reset. And then this enables them to grow again and recover. Well, their currency is currently the euro. The euro can't go to zero. So if Italy has a debt crisis, they either need a bailout from the northern states, which don't want to give it because politically, why would Germans want to give their retirement money to Italians who have a famously dysfunctional government and economy and lots of corruption? No one wants to do that. They're basically just playing the short game, which is kicking the can down the road and using quantitative easing to make sure that Italy can continue to refinance their debt and limp along pretending to be a functional economy, when actually what the Italian economy really wants to do is default, have a huge crisis, all their banks fail, and eventually out of this crisis rise like a phoenix and kind of reset. But that can't happen while they're a part of the EU. So they're kind of stuck in this crappy status quo. And it makes, in my opinion, the European Central Bank, who's tasked with supervising this mess, very sensitive to things that might upset the apple cart. And Bitcoin is one of these things, because you can't really do monetary policy that debases your citizen's savings if your citizens opt out of your monetary system and buy Bitcoin. You know, when they join the Bitcoin network, they're insulated from the effects of your monetary policy. It reduces the power of financial institutions. It protects citizens from bad policy. And it means that essentially your currency fails faster and sooner as opposed to slower and later, which is basically the plan of everyone in charge at the ECB. Their optimal scenario is they manage to retire and get out the door before the currency crisis finally blows up. And you're going to have low growth up until that time happens. So frankly, I think it's better for everyone that the crisis happen sooner as opposed to later. Because years and years of low growth, that's like Lynn Alden talked about. That's time under the curve. That's causing damage. That's people yep. who didn't have the economic opportunities, didn't have the ability to start families and do those personal milestones. And when you have one or two generations that have been stuck in a low growth environment, that's dry kindling for political problems down the line. And I think that's kind of where we are today. Yeah, it's all follow the money. It, it really leads us there. And, you know, because these economies are so ginormous, you can see this some of this stuff coming out years ahead of time because it takes so long for all this stuff to catch up and all these things to actually happen. And that also makes it a bit frustrating because you can see it coming and you can say, well, if I can see this coming, why aren't they doing anything about it? But it always seems to come back to everybody's trying to manage it. They're trying to do their best job. They know how. And sometimes... <laughs> They get it wrong. And like in this case, you know, they, they kick the can down the road. They think they're trying to make it easier on everybody, or maybe they'll think they'll make it the next guy's problem. But like you say, the sooner they eat that sandwich today, the less the uh, fallout from it. But they'll just keep kicking it down the road as long and as hard as they can. Gosh, I had to bring it back to sandwiches. Well, this episode here of the Dad Pods brought to you by the self-hosted show. It's a show I do with my buddy, Alex. We just had a new episode out this week. And I talked a little bit about a new self-hosted to-do app that I found because I'd like to have my to-dos in my RV for my road trips, like a dedicated app just for road trip stuff. I don't know. Just, you know, why not? I mean, if you can run applications yourself, why not? So that's the kind of thing we talk about in self-hosted is things you can run on your own land, use your Raspberry Pis, put them to good use. We, we just had a guest on recently that has a fantastic list of Raspberry Pi projects. And uh, I won't spoil it here, but you'll never believe how many Raspberry Pis that guy owns. It was, it was crazy. Is it 10? Way more than 10. <laughs> Way more. Wow. He could almost make a uh, derivative uh, ERC-20 token based on the value of the amount of pies that he owns as the reserve currency. Goodness. 
That sounds like a sickness. That's uh, it's a little crazy. But he also made a great list of projects. All of it's at selfhosted.show. Or search for the self-hosted show in your podcast app, which brings us to Bitcoin education. And after that massive news section, this will likewise probably be a little massive. Our first article is from the BitMEX research blog. Now, BitMEX is the Bitcoin mercantile exchange. In previous Bitcoin cycles, BitMEX was known as the kind of degen Bitcoin casino, where you could go 100x leverage long Bitcoin and immediately get liquidated by their liquidation bot that was trading against their customers. But since then, BitMEX has tried to clean up their reputation, and they now sponsor excellent research. And their current article is entitled The Op Return Wars of 2014. DAPs versus Bitcoin transactions. Now, were you involved in the DAP discussion in 2014, Chris? What I seem to recall from that discussion... What does DAP mean? (laughs) What the hell is a DAP? Uh, You're right. We should say it's a decentralized application. The idea being that you could store the data in the blockchain and then the application could derive some of its primitives from that. But you know what I remember about this conversation? Because this is years ago, so it's very, very fuzzy. But what we were really concerned about was twofold. Number one is using the return feature to just store arbitrary data in the blockchain sure seemed like a great way to blow up the size of the blockchain. But then the other issue was back then at the time is most Bitcoin nodes just discarded any transaction that had data in the op return field. And so it not only did it require like using this field that once you turn it on, people could just start storing arbitrary messages in the blockchain, but it also meant that all the node operators were going to have to upgrade. And that's what I recall like was the sort of critical flaw in this conversation back then. So what you're saying is back then, there was a default setting in Bitcoin nodes that disregarded op return transactions. In fact, right. could it be that the op return function was relatively new and therefore when it was introduced to Bitcoin Core, it was by default turned off? Yeah, probably because later on they they changed the default and now it's it's been on for years. So I'm just going to summarize the article for those of us who weren't there. Essentially what happened was in 2014, the first distributed app was invented and it was, I believe, Counterparty. And so Counterparty is essentially a Bitcoin layer two, and it anchors itself into Bitcoin. So it kind of piggybacks on top of Bitcoin's proof of work and creates like another layer on top of Bitcoin. And it was using that op return, right? That feature in there where you could store arbitrary data in a message part of the transaction. Well, it does now. Counterparty still exists. And Counterparty is actually where NFTs were invented. So you can go and search for like counterparty and you will find a website with rare Pepe's on it. And I have looked at (laughs) it. It's like, it's like a place. It's like a distributed marketplace where you can buy rare Pepe's, which are old school. Yeah. These images that are, they're tied to Bitcoin transactions They're counterparty transactions, which are in the Bitcoin blockchain. Yeah. You can receive one of these in a counterparty wallet. The counterparty NFTs are real NFTs in the sense that the NFT picture data is inside the actual NFT. Wow. It's not a link. Wow. That's a way better way to do it. Yeah. So I think these are pretty chonky little transactions. I mean, this is... That's what I recall a lot of the upset was about, was that there's just... But of course, I guess they wouldn't have been able to use it because it wasn't... The op return feature just wasn't supported in most places. So they would have had to do it another way. Yeah. You have to imagine all of that bytecode to put an image in there. That's a massive transaction. And then that has to go in the blockchain that then lands on every single node. It feels a little abusive. A couple things here. One... 
I don't think that the actual counterparty transactions go on the Bitcoin blockchain. I think that more like a hash of all of the counterparty transactions go on the Bitcoin blockchain. So they're anchoring some data in, but it's not like they're coding image data into Bitcoin. I think that would have been mm, expensive mm. even back then. Okay. The first thing that happened was counterparty originally did not use the opreturn function. And so opreturn is a function where you can write a message in a Bitcoin transaction. And I've used this before because I've used open timestamps to timestamp a hash of my novel into the blockchain. And this is to help me with copyright in the future. And Counterparty was actually using the op check multisig function. So they were kind of misusing this function to create this counterparty transaction in Bitcoin blocks. Mm. And this made core developers absolutely crazy. <laughs> Like it made people nuts. First, you had uh, Jeff Garzik basically criticizing the way that they implemented Counterparty. They think that they were dumping too much data on the blockchain. He's angry that they misuse the check multisig function. You basically have a description of this back and forth. And the gist of it is that Bitcoin developers basically felt that Counterparty was misusing the Bitcoin blockchain. And their <laughs> point of view was get the F out. Like, this is for money. You are misusing it. Get out of here. Yeah. This attitude sort of led to Ethereum in, in mm -hmm. a way. I could totally see that. Vitalik weighs in too. And I think that a lot of Bitcoiners criticize Ethereum. And I certainly love to because it's silly. But also I love Ethereum in the sense that everyone who wanted to do crazy stuff went to Ethereum and did crazy stuff and they didn't do it on Bitcoin. And so Bitcoin got to have serious adult conversations about improving cryptographic primitives and developing novel new decentralized technologies. And Ethereum got to have CryptoKitties. And I think that's a great trade-off. But what's interesting is that in 2014, there was this idea of legitimate uses of the Bitcoin blockchain. And I think that we're past that. I think that we're actually at a point where the consensus view is, if you pay for the block space, that's your block space. You can put a NFT dick butt in there. You can do whatever you want with it as long as you pay for it. What do you think, Chris? Have I captured the current view on that? I also would add, not only do I agree with it, but that's part of what made Ethereum so annoying early on, is that it was that collection of bad ideas. But you know, as you talk about this too, I, I can't help but see parallels in the operating system space. Like what you're kind of describing there when you describe Bitcoin and those attributes, it sounds like OpenBSD to me. OpenBSD, say, versus Linux or FreeBSD, where Linux and FreeBSD are a little more um, aggressive in their development pace, a little quicker to add features, where an operating system like OpenBSD goes slower and makes Make sure that the security fundamentals are in place before they proceed further at each step. And it's somewhat conservative in their design and in their development ambitions. But as they've stuck to it over the decade, uh, they've produced a really sound, really solid, really stable, really secure server operating system. Yeah, true that. I mean, every project seems to coalesce around certain values and Bitcoin seems to focus on money and decentralization and Ethereum seems to focus on whatever the new hotness is and how how do we build in new upgrades that pumps the price of Ethereum by reducing liquidity? And that's great. Each project can have their own unique values. Yeah, there's people who love that kind of thing. Was that was that good how I worked that burn in there? I like the positive compliment burns the most. Those are my favorite Ethereum burns. No, because it's like, look, 
When it comes to figuring out ways to constrain liquidity and get people to take Ethereum off exchanges so that early pre-sale Ethereans can dump their bags at higher prices, I say Ethereum is the best at that. It sure is. It's really great at returning value to some of the early pioneers in the cryptocurrency space like Coinbase and Binance, where just between the two of them, nearly 30% of all Ethereum is already staked. (laughs) Before proof of stake, has even been rolled out. There's already massive consolidation in some of the absolute, trying to keep this positive, absolute innovators, business model innovators in this space. And it's already been centralized before it's even been made official. It's an impressive efficiency in how something that could have been brought even more decentralized could have been driven even more decentralized with this upgrade. An upgrade could have made it even more decentralized. Instead, before the upgrade's even done, and of course they're steaming full speed ahead, it's incredibly centralized. Something like 67% of all of the staked Ethereum is on like a handful of centralized exchanges or uh, Lido. That's really great. And you know, what's really nice about that is also 40% of all of their nodes are on AWS. So you really know where to go if you have a problem. You know who to pick up the phone and call. Yeah, exactly. That's efficiency. Centralization is incredibly efficient and Ethereum has identified that. I'm glad that they are experimenting with a centralized blockchain. Maybe they could make the block speed even faster or something, or the block size even larger, which I believe they're going to do. That's true. But remember, Dad, you got to think about this in uh, maximum griftonomics. What you need is a layer that rides on top of Ethereum that becomes a dependency that is also involved in the transaction layer. So you could call this like maybe like a like a ZK rollup. So that way you've kind of enshrined like these middlemen that will be second layer blockchains that have to exist forever because they are the ch- they are the chains that hold the records. So for the records in the Ethereum blockchain to be accurate, then, you know, Loopring has to stay online forever. Oh uh, that seems like a great way to sort of lock in some institutional middlemen by oh, design. That, that you know, really, really clever. Point. I know. Because, you know, Bitcoiners might misunderstand that and say, hey, you're building systemic fragility and contagion in at a protocol level. And Ethereans would say, no, 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 you don't understand. This is peak griftonomics. <laughs> right. It's a great way for them to innovate in the uh, fintech layer and provide new services and businesses on top of a reliable, slower layer one. I mean, what could go wrong? Um, In fact, then maybe you could have like some middlemen in front of them, like exchanges even. So you could have like several middlemen between you now and the uh, layer one blockchain. And don't bother with the peer-to-peer stuff. Yeah, this was the promise of blockchain, right? More middlemen, new middlemen. (laughs) Oh my gosh. The problem is we have so many great titles for this episode. Peak Griftonomics. Oh, beautiful. You know, when you have a muse like Ethereum, you can't help but be inspired. So that was quite an aside, but this was a thoroughly enjoyable article about Bitcoin history that I just wasn't aware of. And I recommend it for anyone who is a total nerd. I feel bad for my part because I was I was one of the people in the peanut gallery saying that we don't want this extra stuff in the blockchain. I was that guy. And now looking back at it, it seems like no big deal. Like just yesterday, I saw somebody posting that they put their wedding vows in there or something like that and submitted it to the blockchain. I'm like, okay, if you want to spend some sats to do that, (laughs) enjoy yourself. (laughs) Now, our next Bitcoin education piece is Bitcoin Optech 208. Now, I think we put in Bitcoin Optech 207, which was basically empty. There was just a couple links to the Bitcoin Stack Exchange with some fun questions about the maximum size of a multi-sig or something like that. Right. But in this week's Bitcoin Optech, the first piece of news is actually the half aggregation of Schnorr signatures, which we discussed last week. 
So they have a couple links there, I think slightly more technical, that uh, discuss how these half aggregations work. So I won't cover that again because we discussed it last week. But the second piece in Optech is kind of interesting. And I was hoping to explain this to you, Chris, because this was the subject of a Seattle Bitcoin devs meetup in which we discussed MuSig2. That's great. Now, MuSig2 is a way of creating a multi-sig using Taproot. And it was very interesting to look at a Python code example. I know, Python code. Blockstream is trying to get rid of that, right? Because there is a large block of code in the middle of all of the multi-sig functions that had to do with the x-coordinate of the Schnorr signature. The TLDR is that Bitcoin public keys are actually points on a graph, basically an XY graph, like in school. These public keys are actually points on this massive curve, which is ECDSA. It's like an elliptic curve, it's basically a funny shaped curve. And one interesting optimization in Taproot is that Taproot addresses, public keys, they are one bit shorter than you need to give you the positive or negative side of the curve. So basically with taproot keys, they've been optimized for size, but as a result, when you are doing math on them, you have to do a bunch of checking to figure out if it's on the Y positive or Y negative side of the curve. Does that make sense? Yeah, I'm following you. I'm visualizing it as you uh, describe it. This was really interesting to me looking at it because we think about Bitcoin transactions and the Bitcoin blockchain and of course, course, the obvious answer is make everything smaller, remove everything that's not necessary. But then when we were looking at this MuSig implementation, we realized like, God, as a result of this one bit making these Schnorr signatures like a little bit shorter, they're so much harder to work with. This could really slow down the development of complicated multi-sig schemes because the raw materials you're working with are just more complicated and harder to check and, and whatnot. And so the second piece in Bitcoin Optic 208, the X-only workaround, is basically a new technique that might be a way to optimize these keys so that you don't necessarily have this problem of which side of the curve you're on. But there may be some complications. And so this is just sort of an interesting little bit of technology, Schnorr and Taproot, very non-controversial upgrade. Everyone wanted it. Turns out no one did too much work on how to actually implement this stuff until it was in Bitcoin Core. And now we're discovering that they're actually pretty difficult to work with. This is sort of a cautionary tale, but also to me, this is a story of how every altcoin that just goes ahead and does stuff is ridiculous because this is Bitcoin. There are more eyes on this project than any other project in the world. And still when we change things and we implement new things, it's a mess. So you're really telling me that other projects with a fraction of the resources, a fraction of the interest, a fraction of the network are going to do a good job? Like, just don't kid yourself. That's a joke. This is one of those that does seem like it's going to probably sail through pretty smoothly. And some of the tweaks here in this uh, X-only workaround seem pretty reasonable. So they're not going to be very controversial. I don't think it's going to cause very many red flags. And I just draw attention to that. And I just want to underscore that because there are times where we have, and no doubt will, talk about more controversial improvements to 
Bitcoin and other proposals. So it's nice to note when one is just sort of like everybody seems on board. The last mailing list post has to do with deliberately slow lightning payments. And so there may be ways to improve privacy on the lightning network by slowing payments down sometimes. And there's also a reference to the Bitcoin Core PR Review Club. I've mentioned this before. This is a really cool IRC meeting where Bitcoin Core developers and anyone who's interested can hop on to IRC and answer some questions about a Bitcoin pull request. And Gloria Zhao, who goes by Glojo, she usually hosts these PR review clubs. And recently she has been made a Bitcoin Core maintainer with commit access to the repository. Congratulations to Gloria. Oh, she would be a fun guest. She's like one of the most positive people to talk to, in my opinion, in Bitcoin. Yeah, she'd be a great guest. Her uh, specialty is the Bitcoin mempool. Let's talk about this article that came from Bitcoin Lizard, because I think this is an idea people could start chewing on. And the idea is to tunnel your Bitcoin node through a VPS. So that way it can be on your LAN. But the address that the world sees is not associated with your home connection. Right. I think that the beginner way to do this is to host your node via Tor only. And so you get a Tor onion address that you can use to access your node or your local Electrum server. And most Bitcoin apps can handle a Tor address. But then you have to deal with Tor, which has latency issues. And so with Bitcoin Lizard's solution, what you do is you get a $5 a month VPS in the cloud, and then you use WireGuard and some clever firewall rules to basically mirror your Bitcoin services through that VPS. So you can access them from anywhere and you have a fast, reliable connection, unlike Tor, but you don't reveal where your home is, where your node is living. Obviously, it's kind of an intermediate to advanced solution. You're going to have to use the command line for it, but might be worth it for our technically minded listeners. Which brings us to feedback. Remember, you can always get in touch via email, bitcoindadpod at protonmail.com or on Twitter at bitcoindadpod on Twitter. You can always send in a boost as well using a podcasting 2.0 app such as Fountain.fm, Castomatic on iOS, or Podverse. Now we have some boosts. Again, this week, I'm reading Boost Like an Animal on the Fountain app because I still haven't figured out how to get helipad and voltage talking to each other. That's on me, and I apologize. So for our interview with Jameson Lop, Cass Peeland sent in 3,690 sats with the message, thanks. Well, thank you, Cass. And then for our episode, Stock to Seagulls, again, we had a boost from Cass Peeland, double boost, 3,690 sats. Thanks for the show. Thank you, Cass. We had a boost from Tim Apple, a row of ducks, 2,222 sats. Here's some ducky love. Thank you, Tim. Feeling the love. <laughs> yeah, here's my favorite username. I do really like that username. At ITGuy005, 1,175 sats. Hey! Oh, it's LTGuy005, like Lieutenant Guy 005 Oh, I've been reading IT Guy as well. My bad. Oh, yeah. Okay. So maybe we have an armed service listener. Thanks for the support. And then at Scott Wolf has boosted 50 sats. Great work as always. Oh, thanks, Scott. Now, I'm really sorry to everyone whose boost wasn't read. Hopefully that will be sorted out next week. I promise to try harder on that and to get our boosting back to a respectable state. It's tricky when you're traveling, so I think they probably understand. 
this isn't some frivolous traveling either. It was uh, it was necessary. So I, uh, I appreciate everyone boosting in any way, and we will resurrect those boosts. And if necessary, I will spend hours reading them out so you can listen to your boost. It's a boost spectacular boost. Maybe that could be like some sort of live episode or something. People might find that boring. Like, I don't want to just listen to other people's boosts, but there's a lot of conversation that comes out of them, too. Okay, well, that's a show. Kind of an epic show, I think. That one's going to need an oversized load disclaimer on it for sure. And here I was saying it was a slow week and nothing was going on. Thank you so much, Chris. Thank you. Thank you, everybody listening. And thank you, everybody who's boosting, too. And the Matrix Room. Shout out to our Bitcoin Matrix Room. They have been really great. And, you know, I was really enjoying that conversation about privacy cell phone operating systems. I thought that was very polite disagreement. Yeah, exactly. Everybody said their piece, but they didn't have to fight about it. I almost want to take that conversation conversation and do something with it because i feel like we talk about running nodes on raspberry Pis. sure let's not let the perfect be the enemy of the good if you're going to just do bitcoin on your cell phone how would you do that right and you know that's how my kids will probably want to store it or i imagine you know their generation but you know, they'd probably trust a mobile device more than a some pc that's just you know in a house somewhere right like a pc would just be such a weird thing who uses that my goofy dad <laughs> okay well the seagulls are calling to me this has been the Bitcoin Dad Pod, recorded on Friday, July 15th, 2022. I've been your Bitcoin Dad, and I am here remotely, as always, with me, me, Chris. Thanks for joining us, everybody. See you next time.